Hello and welcome to this week's Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Phil Oakley. How are you doing, Phil? Very well, thank you, John. Good to have you back in the office. Yes, nice to be back. Good. Um, right, so it's been another crazy week on the markets, and, and yesterday was particularly crazy. We saw some uh, lots of red on the screens, and I know you wanted to talk briefly about yep. the markets uh, generally. And then we're going to talk about some, some really interesting company news, Tesco being... Probably the biggest news of the week, I would say. Uh, some really good results, but sort of slightly overshadowed by the departure of, uh, or the imminent departure of its chief executive, who has uh, has done a, an amazing job at turning that company around. And then there's a couple of other little companies that we want to cover. Um, let's start with the markets. What's going on, Phil? Don't know. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> They're going down. Um, and... Are they still going down? I, I didn't check. Yeah, yeah, they've been going down. Okay. As we are talking, the American markets haven't opened, but the the FTSE is down again today, and essentially, it is it almost feels like you know, people talk about October a lot, and you know, wider wider stock markets tend to wobble in October and I've got no idea. Well, they've been wobbling all year and then coming back and wobbling and coming well, back. So, yeah, you know, is a, this just another wobble? I don't know. We had a big we had a big wobble this time last year where, you know, the markets really did the last 3 months of 2018 they did fall off because the expectation was that the American Federal Reserve would raise interest rates which would make assets such as shares, less attractive. We know that's not the case now. So not the, the case doing now. The now and, and, and we're having the same reaction. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting is that, you know, if you actually look at the bond market, which I often advise people to do, because I just think people in the bond market are a bit smarter than people in the equity market. Um, they the bond, the bond market is where you tend to find a lot of, you get a lot closer to the truth, certainly in terms of what's happening with the economy. And for months, the bond market has been saying, watch out, there might be trouble ahead. You know, we have you know, $17 trillion of sovereign government bonds that offer negative yields. You have to pay to own them. Um, rather than being paid to own them. I, I saw an interesting little story this week about, I think it was one of the Irish banks, that, that its systems can't actually cope with negative rates, which I thought was quite interesting. An illustration of how unusual this this, this actually is. Yeah. I mean, you know, the only way you can, re- you know, there's only two ways you can really justify negative interest rates on bonds. And one, one is that, that bonds are massively overvalued, or you think the economic future is so grim that even with a negative yield um, prices will fall by a greater extent and that you will still actually increase the buying power of your money by owning a negative yielding bond. And I guess guess that's where the concerns are right now that the the economy not just the UK, not just Europe but globally is not in a great place. No. No, I mean you know there is a lot to worry about. I mean I think the interesting thing that you know what people quite sensibly ask is what took the stock market too so long to catch up with the bond market the bond market's been reflecting these worries now for months and i think what did it was um a very poor number in america for 
essentially a survey that looks at manufacturing output, something called the ISM survey. And anything below a number of 50 signals that... Contraction. A contraction. And it came out with a number just above 47. And um, that kind of number, when it's when it's been seen in the past, has usually been quite a good predictor of a recession in America. So, so we're seeing similar um, numbers from Europe. So PMIs or whatever you want to call them, yeah, posting Ger- managers, yeah, Germany, Germany in particular. Yeah, German numbers look, look terrible. And of course, we've still got this un- ongoing trade war. We've had something out this morning about um, the Americans slapping seven and a half billion pounds worth of, uh, or billion dollars, or whatever the currency is, on EU EU imports. This was the WTO ruling yesterday yeah. in relation to the what has been ruled as illegal sub- uh, subsidies for Airbus. Yeah, and, Donald uh, Trump's you know got be in his bonnet about Airbus. Effectively being subsidised by European government. This is this has been rumbling on for as long as I oh, remember. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, been running on for years, twenty I mean, years. This yeah. has been being being argued over. I mean, all of this thing's been going on for years. You know, the Chinese thing has been going on for years. It just just actually happened that twenty years ago, American consumers were only too happy to buy Chinese stuff on the shelves of Walmart, and actually, the whole Chinese economy. And the way that they sold stuff to America, then took the money, shoved it back into the American bond market, pushed down the interest rates, made interest rates very low, made borrowing very affordable in America. That suited that suited America at at a point in time. And now they now they sort of realise perhaps they've given away too much, and they want to try and bring the balance back. And this, of course. Cutting to the chase is messing around. It is destabilizing the flow of goods across the world, and therefore it's causing turbulence in in national economies. But you have a general general issues as well, such as you know since the financial crisis, which arguably was caused by one thing or another, too much debt in the wrong places. And what have we had since then? More debt. In the wrong places, still, arguably yes. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned in your Alpha report this week that that you know a lot of that debt is backing things like property, for example. Yeah, I mean, property is you know essentially used as the main security for lending money. Um, people, you people, particularly in America and Britain, traditionally use their houses have used their houses as cash machines, and when the value of it goes up. And the value of the equity, which is the value of the house, less any outstanding mortgage, goes up. People feel wealthier. They can. They are encouraged by banks, by financial institutions, to take that money out and spend it. And um, clearly, there's some of that that's going on, either via equity release or just loans, or people particularly the feel good effects. As, yeah, as but well. you know, obviously. You have a generational effect here as well, where you have older people perhaps selling big family houses, moving to small houses, pocketing the difference. That money goes into the economy, um, and that's not that's not really a debt issue, but it shows you that, that the power of housing equity can have on the way that the economy works. Yeah, there were some housing numbers out this week actually, and and we're starting to see. Uh, I mean, we've seen contraction in in specific markets, particularly London. But yeah, that seems to have spread now. 
to to the sort of aggregate level. Yeah, this is a good thing, right? Well, yes, absolutely. You know, you know, <laughs> it may not. You know, if you if you want to use your house as a cash machine, you see it as a bad thing. If you're a young person who wants to buy ha- buy a house and put a roof over the head, falling prices are a good thing. Mm, I can never work out what the, what the media wants house prices to do because you know if they fall, then everything's you know going to hell in a handcart, and if they rise, then young people can't afford it. So I'm never quite sure. What people actually want to, yeah, it's, you know, if, if oil prices and petrol prices go up, or electricity prices, gas prices go up, everyone's up in arms about it. But if house prices go up, which are a cost, you know, someone else's cost, that's that's seen as a good thing. And I've never never really worked that out. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so we could see we could see further weakness ahead. You know, if if there is some resetting going on here, we could, we could, and I think. You know, what's worrying people now is that we've had this low interest rate environment for a long time now, and that's been seen as almost a free lunch for shares because it's made, you know, if you look at the interest rate you get on the share, either the dividend yield, the earnings yield, or the cash flow yield, and you compare it with the yields that you've been getting on bonds or savings accounts, they've looked very attractive. And they had the added attraction that those profits, those dividends, those cash flows have been growing as well. And now what we're seeing is that interest rates are low. The yields are still, the yields are lower, but they're better than bonds. But now what people are questioning is, are those yields on what you pay for a share today, are they going to grow? And if people think they're not going to grow, this is why perhaps we see people selling shares and and the markets are going down. Yeah, I mean, you also mentioned in your Alpha report this week um, that, you know, generally over the past well, decade now, God, that's flown by. Yeah. You know, there, there has always been support for the market in, in, in the form of central bankers being able to essentially stimulate it through whatever means they choose to do so. And, and the firepower to do that is essentially gone. Yeah, now. I agree with that. Do you think uh, we've heard this week, for example, I mean, Brexit still rumbles on in the background. We heard uh, Saji Javid at the Conservative Party conference talking about potential fiscal stimulus for the economy. So is, is the um, is the onus on economic stimulation shifting then from monetary to fiscal? Definitely. And I think this is this is what the bank, the, the, the bankers, the central bankers of the world want. They want governments to do to say, look, hey, you can borrow for nothing now. Uh so you can go and borrow lots of money and you can spend it. And you've seen the British government in the last week or so come out with big promises to spend money. And that that, that will stimulate the economy. And I think, you know, the I, I think, you know, in the context of a lot of doom and gloom going around, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, you know, wages now in this country are growing in terms of the in terms of real wages, so wages less the rate of inflation is actually the buying power of people's pay packets is growing quite nicely now we need to see more of it but you know that 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 buying power in the in the household in the pockets of uk consumers is going up that seems like a good point a good opportunity at which to start talking about some of the results we've seen this week. Yeah. Because actually what we want to talk about they're mostly retailers. They are utterly dependent upon consumer spending. Yeah. Should we start with uh, should we start with a nice news story after this uh, all this this doom and gloom Tesco because because the results were really really very very good indeed they were good but I think as always with these type of things the devil is in the detail and it's very interesting that Tesco's Tesco has been turned around from being 
a company that was in a really bad place five years ago to a company that is, you know, it's got its mojo back. It's it's now in a good place again. Its profits are back. Um, its margins are not as high as they were because of what's gone on in the market over the last 10 years of the likes of the discounters. But they've gone from earning, you know, next to nothing in terms of profit margins to over 4%. I think 4.4% the margins got to this week in the in the profit. But the profits, I think the thing for me is that you've got to look at why the profits are growing. And they're not really being driven by selling more stuff. What they're well, they are selling more stuff in volume terms, but they they're having to cut the prices. But didn't didn't they announce that they were going to raise prices on quite a lot of goods this week, though? So, so so perhaps you know th- th- there is now another shift in emphasis coming on. Maybe yeah. maybe we'll see. I think it's it's still a very competitive market out there. But what, I think the point I'm trying to make here is that the the profit has been driven by cost cutting being more efficient and also being a little bit cleverer with the type of things that they're selling. And what I mean by that, and this is is a big theme, and I think Tesco's done really well, is this thing about private label. And it's something that I've gone on about in the past, that the power of private label in terms of the value it offers to the consumer, but also the profit margin to the retailer. The retailer makes a lot more profit selling their own label than selling a branded good. Yeah. I mean- and and Tesco has been Tesco's been pushing this hard. And this is this has been a big no, well, not insignificant contributor to its to its margin performance. I mean that, that kind of takes takes me into thinking about uh, perhaps going off on a little bit of a tangent, you know, where does that leave the likes of you know the Unilevers and Racket Bankers of this world who who have relied on these big branded goods that they can you know flog what? in bulk through supermarkets? Yeah. It's, I mean, and, and yet these companies have continued to do very well in stock market terms. Yeah, where does it leave them? I think it leaves them in quite a difficult place because um, the, the the problem that these companies have got is you know Tesco has got the same problem is actually growing the revenue line and. But I think more so, more so in emerging markets where you get local brands and private label, and obviously the discounters are, push, are big pushers of, of private label. It is a big problem for the branded consumer goods companies that have been making fat profit margins, and now the the, the quality and performance of a lot of private label food and non-food is very, very good. You don't have to go and walk around most supermarkets now and look at the sort of premium ranges that they're rolling out, um, look at the branded branded household cleaners and, and that type of thing. They're very good in performance terms compared with branded profit, branded products. And what tends to happen is that for the branded companies to shift their stuff, they have to offer it on promotion. I mean, I notice you don't have Unilever, which is you know generally considered a sort of quality... I don't like reliable stock in your uh, fancy sip. No, I don't like it. I did have it. I got rid of it. I got rid of it because because of what we've just been talking about, with the exception of the beauty products business, and I think to an extent things like the ice cream business. I, I my concern with Unilever is that Unilever is very vulnerable on a lot of its food brands to private label. We we, we did see that during the last. 
the last recession, yeah. there was a big shift towards private labour, but then it sort of seemed to come back a bit. Yeah, I think when, when people felt a little bit wealthier. Yeah, I think when people feel, but I, but it, but it's interesting. I think one of one of the things that's undoubtedly happening is that people have shifted. When times were hard, they shifted to the discount. They they went to a private label brand. They actually found out actually these work pretty well. And you know, you throw in the likes of Amazon who are trying to get it get in on this. And I, this this is a story that's going to run and run for for quite a few more years, in my opinion. I mean, the interesting thing about this Tesco story this week is is really the departure. I mean, the results were amazing. But the, the departure of Dave Lewis, the chief exec, yeah. the imminent departure is 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 the real concern here. Now he actually came from Unilever, which is quite interesting. So I wonder how much that sort of you know poacher turn gamekeeper type thing has uh, has really helped him deliver this turnaround. But you know, is his is his imminent departure a bad thing? Has he left it in good enough shape? I think he's left it in excellent shape. You know, we've talked about the efficiency, the private label push, and obviously. He will know the margins that Unilever. Well, exactly. You know, exactly. And he'll know the margins on private label, and and he's he's done that very nicely with uh, with with Tesco. I mean, and, and you know, I mean, I write my editorial this week about executive pay, and he wasn't actually obscenely paid no. as a FTSE 100 chief exec. And the uh, the job he had to do when he came in, it, it's probably a bigger mess than most companies face at any I think, point in their history. Yeah, I, th- I don't know whether it's luck or good judgment, but undoubtedly, what's been the one of the big factors in turning Tesco around is by has been buying Booker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Booker, the you know wholesale food business, it's given Tesco a different market to play in. Booker itself was more profitable than the Tesco supermarkets. They're also buying. They've announced another acquisition this week, which brings in another sort of billion pound of sales. And it gives Tesco a lot of buy- increased buying power, and um, it also gives the opportunity to spread those revenues over existing costs and make and make money. And I think the acquisition of Booker, which a lot of people, including myself, looked at at the time and thought, mm, "Not sure about this. Have they paid a bit too much for it?" Well, it looks it looks like it's been a very good deal. I always liked Booker because it was very well run. It was always a little bit expensive as a share, uh, but I always liked it because it was very well run. And, you know, I think his chief exec was was the guy they probably had lined up to uh, to be the successor to, to Dave Lewis. Unfortunately, he, he's, he's been taken ill, uh, so, so that's not going to happen, Charles Wilson. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they, they do have – they've had to go to, a, to an outsider now, which, I, th- which I, I sense that you're a little bit concerned about. A little bit, but, I, you know, I also say that, there's a, there's a tendency for particularly media types and journalists and analysts to sometimes get too wound up in the personality of, of, of management in that at the end of the day you have a company with its assets, with its products, and those the, the direction, obviously the captain steers the ship, but also the, the, the captain also has lots of faithful foot soldiers and deputies who are also part of that, and these people are largely staying on board. And I think the only the, the only risk the only risk you really get with a change of change of ownership is you get somebody in who tries to do something a little bit different. Morrison speaks to mind here, where Dalton Phillips came in and took over from um, Mark Bolland. Mark Bolland, yeah. 
And Mark Bolland had left Morrison's in a really good shape and Dalton Phillips came and mucked it up. Personally, I, I don't think Mark Bolland had left Morrison's in quite as good a shape as everyone said he had. Why do you say that? Uh, because as Dalton Phillips tried to employ his his strategies, changes, it became clear that there were lots of things that Morrison's didn't have. Uh, one of them in particular was, was good customer data. They had no you know club card equivalent. I thought that left them in a very weak position. You know, lots of the Safeway stores had never really been made over in, you know, to quite the extent they needed to be. The IT was still quite poor. Oh, yeah. I mean, my mum used to work in the cash office of a Morrison store <laughs> uh, up until this is what would have been early, early mid 2000s. And they were still having to cash up the store's takings with pen and pen and paper. Yeah. And I, I, I think some of those issues persisted. You know, and yeah, uh, I think I think they 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 have largely sorted it out. And I think well, bear in mind, bear in mind, they had to, they have had to go through a bit of a restructuring and turnaround as well under a new chief exec. Yeah, and that's been going quite well too. And I think the other thing is that the finance director at Morrison's at the time, Richard Pennycook, oh, Pennycook, he's good. He was who good. Uh, I I used to know when he was the finance director of RAC, um, is a very good guy, very understated, very good at his job, and I don't think he got the credit that probably he deserved or thought he deserved for doing what he did at Morrison. But we digress. I think, you know, people will look at um, Ken Murphy, who is the CEO designate here at Tesco, and they look at him and say, well, he's not a grocer. He's been working for Walgreens, who own Boots, uh, the chemist. And they'll say, well, does he really know grocery retail? I'm, I'm not so sure. Boots, Boots hasn't been having a great time. Bit we don't we don't hear as much about it because it's a private, you know, essentially a private company here in the UK. But uh... probably probably not due to management issues, just due to the structural shift in what's and and how a lot of the products are being sold now. But that said, we've talked about Superdrug on this podcast before, and yeah. they seem to be doing okay. Yeah, Superdrug and Savers, which is an offshoot of uh, of Superdrug, are doing well. Maybe because they're privately owned. And they don't have to, you know, they don't have to answer to shareholders, and they can take a different strategy. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I mean, the you would have expected news like the imminent departure of Dave Lewis to have hit the shares in Tesco, given how instrumental he has been in the turnaround, yeah. and the fact that in a in a day of red for the FTSE 100, Tesco shares are in the green, yeah. albeit marginally, is testament to how good these results. It are. is, but it's also a testament of the thing that a lot of people see Tesco as a very defensive share. So you, I, I think you, what you conclude in your alpha report is potentially not much capital growth in in uh, I, in, in the tough years ahead. I but- struggle to see how this is really going to grow. You know, it has a revenue. There's a revenue growth issue here because you look look at last year and it was like sort of down a little bit, sort of minus 0.3 percent. But I think it was about four percent volume growth in the UK. So that's telling you that they either sold a different a different type of product, so cheaper products like private label, or they cut prices or both. But there's some very interesting things going on as well, strategically. I think revenue growth, the big focus now is on Tesco Express stores in Thailand and in the UK. There's also a push online now. I mean, we've all you and I have talked in the past about, you know, does online selling super does selling groceries over the internet make a lot of money? Well, look, but they're saying it is now. They, well, they say it's profitable and cash generative, but they haven't put any numbers to it. But they obviously feel confident about it because they're doubling the capacity. What I think is quite one of the interesting things that I think 
looking within the business is this proposal to offer a premium version of club card and called club card plus now club card is a fantastic asset you mentioned this thing about customer data absolutely it is a unrivaled asset that tesco has i don't think any retailer in the uk has anything approaching this um, well, Saint- Sainsbury's have a bit of ne- Nexus, not too bad. It's all right. Morrison's do have their own they do. card now, but very late to the game in that respect. Yeah, it offers uh, absolute peanuts in yeah. terms of rewards. I asked Halls and Phillips about that at a press conference once, and he literally like, laughed me out of the room. And, uh, and he was wrong! He <laughs> <laughs> was wrong. You were right. <laughs> I was right. Um, but this thing now is they're offering... Um, it's going to be rolled out by the end of the year. It's, going to be, it's, a, it's a subscription product. And this is something that you are, you know, you see in you see in retail. Obviously, you've got Amazon Prime, and you get all the benefits. And Tesco is is launching a Club Card Plus, which is going to cost seven pounds ninety nine a month. And for that seven ninety nine, you are going to get certain benefits. So, for example, you will get ten percent off two large shops. Within the store, so driving store traffic. Which is where people will tend to buy things that they weren't planning to buy. Well, I think they'd say, interestingly, there are restrictions on this. So right. whether you're going to put a load your trolley up with booze or whatever. And, <laughs> Damn! And walk out with... Temp- <laughs> but that's that's going to be... I mean, you know, if, if you look at a family, you know, a family of four, easily spend 100 quid on a weekly shop. You know, if you're getting 10% off, do that, to, you know, that's paid for itself. Is it a market share grab then, potentially? Or um... It's certainly a retention It's a retention thing, and it could well be a market share grab. I mean, there are other benefits in there, such as you can get 10% off Tesco brands whenever. Uh, you get double data on Tesco Mobile, and then there's, uh, there's also like a foreign exchange fee waiver on the Tesco Club Card credit card. And... We need to know know a little bit more about this, particularly the limits on the weekly shop, on the twice-weekly shop per month, or the two weekly shops per month. Only only eight bottles of gin. Yeah, that kind of thing. (laughs) But, you know, if it gets to the situation where this offers outstanding value, it's not, you know, obviously Tesco can't give too much away because obviously it doesn't want to give all its margin away. But if, if it can communicate to customers that this is a very good deal, then this could this could drive some growth. I mean, Tesco has become you know, one of the things they have done over the past few years, and this sounds like it's part of the same ethos. Is really refocus on the customer, and 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 the shopping experience at Tesco is 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 improved over the years. I spend, which you I spend quite a bit of time in Tesco now. Yeah. <laughs> I've always, always I've always done the weekly grocery shop in our house. And I, five years ago, I would never have gone into Tesco. I didn't like Tesco. I didn't like it as an investment, and I didn't like it as a company because I just thought the consumer experience was poor. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm going to sort of move quickly away from yeah. Tesco in the context of two other companies that have, have, have had a bit of news this week. Yeah. One, one listed, one not listed. One is John Lewis, yeah. which is making some big headcount reductions in its head office team. That's a worrying sign. For John Lewis, I think it's, investors don't need to worry, obviously, but it, it's kind of telling us something about retail. Lenders do, lenders do, of course. But uh... if you're a business that's struggling, you know the easiest thing to do is to cut costs. But the problem, the problem is, is that if you want to build a sustainable recovery in any business, if you look at all successful turnarounds, that generally 
they have to grow sales as well as cutting costs. Well, I, I mean, John Lewis is not even in the territory where people are talking about turnaround, but it seems to be going that way quickly. And I think it's in, I think the department store business is in big trouble. I think Waitrose has stagnated, and I think John Lewis doesn't really know what it stands for anymore. And I don't think customers know what it stands for either. Well, both, both you and I have had some customer service issues lately. Yeah. And our, my, our former editor, Jonathan Ely, has, has tweeted as much, basically said that he went to Amazon in the end to buy yeah. to buy the thing he needed after waiting weeks for John Lewis to... Yeah. to I had the same. I went to Curry's to buy a television because the customer service was rubbish. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's worrying. It's worrying. And um, this, you know, they've got a lot of overhead and they can't compete on price. And, and then, of course, you've got Marks and Spencer, which had, I think they called it a Capital Markets Day or whatever whatever you want to call it, but but they've said their own turnaround plan in their clothing and general merchandising division is 18 months behind schedule. I don't know, that's just that's mind-boggling. Beggar's belief, doesn't it? It really does. That you, you know, that the, the management of, of, of companies that are being paid lots of money are seem, seeming to be quite complacent about the challenges that face them. And I think, you know, John Lewis, Marks and Spencers, I'd throw Sainsbury's into the mix here. And, you know, they've all got quite similar customer demographics. Well, Sainsbury's last week had a bit of news, which we, we briefly touched on on this podcast. It's going to spend a lot of money on its uh, revamping its thoughts. Definitely needs to. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if it, can't, if it can't get, you know, Sainsbury's problem has always been price perception communicating value to its to its customers it's funny i saw some basket costs recently and it, it's not the most expensive by any means it's been apparently throwing a lot of vouchers at, at customers right um to, to to make itself more cost competitive and that that's just taking money off your margin but my my my, my problem with with um Sainsbury's is that it's not selling enough stuff given it's got lots of large large stores lots of overhead and it's not selling enough and I think it relied on Argos and cost savings from Argos to give it some breathing space in terms of profitability and those cost savings on Argos now are coming to an end and, and hence why it tried to get into bed with Asda and this is what you find with companies that try and buy their way to um to profit growth is that when the cost savings run out, Carillion was a great example of this. Carillion did deal after deal after deal, whilst the underlying business was going backwards. All the profit growth was cost savings from combining businesses that they bought into their existing cost structure. And Sainsbury's looks like one of these. It's interesting that you mentioned that approach because it, it, Mr. Bearbles column this week he talks about companies that are are very much led by acquisition, and there is a theory that they they often destroy value. In exactly the way you said, but he, he's actually exploring that that might not always be the case, and and trying to give some pointers about what you should be looking for in acquisitive companies. Let's stick with retail. I know you want to talk about Ted Baker because that that came out today, and that's an absolute shocker. They're horrible. If yeah, what is going on? Oh dear me! If you were Ted Baker shareholder and you looked at your seven o'clock RNS release coming through onto your internet or software provider and you open that up and you think blow me i don't understand why this is happening i mean there was an issue last year obviously a bit of a scandal i'm surprised that it's affected the the business quite so significantly it feels like something more is going on here 
Well, if you listen to, if you read what the company is saying, obviously you can take that with a pinch of salt, um, or as much pinch of salt as you want. But if you put it at face value, they're saying they're facing horrendous price competition, and um, I mean, some really disturbing set, um, words in this statement. I mean, they were saying saying that they were facing distressed discounting from brands that were literally fighting for their survival. And you're thinking, well, do you really want to be in a business up against that? It's showing through the numbers. The numbers look absolutely horrible. You know, there's 400 basis points, 4% has come off the gross margin from 58 to 54. This is painful for any business when you lose that amount of gross margin or profit contribution to your fixed overheads. And then the problem is, is that the distribution costs and the administrative costs are rising by 14%. So the sales are basically flat. Those sales are less profitable. And then underneath those th- those sales and gross profits, you've got underlying costs which are growing at 14%. And that's moved the business from making £25 million of pre-tax profit in the first six months of last year to making a loss. And you read the outlook statement, and it's not very encouraging at all. There's a lot of uncertainty in there. They say that if things continue as they are, they're going to make less money than they made in the second half of last year. It doesn't take much of a number cruncher or someone who's on the ball to work out that profit forecasts are going to be absolutely demolished by this. Big dividend cut coming as well. Yeah, and this is the other thing as well. The dividend cut, you can talk about dividend cuts, obviously, dividends as signals dividends are sometimes interpreted as signals about a company's future profitability where if you're taking best part of 10 pence off your dividend interim dividend from 17 and a bit to seven and a bit what kind of signal are you giving about your future profitability my my view is it's not a very good one Mm. and you know i've i've talked about ted baker in the past i think i think the stock position of this business is horrendous in terms of the amount of stock it's carrying. It has done some good work on this. It has, you know, got some cash inflow from running down its stocks. We don't know what damage that's doing to its profits. The the, the fear would be that as it manages down this stock position, which is way too high, it's going to start blowing a hole in its profits. And you know, my view is that if you look at consensus profits on this yesterday. There were 51 million for the year to January 2020. I think they're going to be probably 30 million or maybe even less. Savage. Savage. And you also got to look at, you know, the things like the credit facilities. Now, one of the things that you've been looking at and um, looking at another distressed company this week is you look at how close some of these companies are getting to their credit limit. And Ted Baker's credit limit, credit facility is about 180 million. I mean, the major shareholder, Ray Kelvin, still owns a big chunk of this. Yeah. So you but you look at take private at some point. Well, yeah, but if you need to inject, you, you know, if you need to inject money into it, you know, if the banks say we'll lend you up to 180 million and you're at 140 million now, so you've got 40 million of slack, but this business is so sensitive, the profits of this business are so sensitive to changes in sales, changes in margins, and you've got rising costs. You've seen a, 
big swing from profit to loss, you know, you could be up against that pretty quickly. Mm. So someone will have to address that. No reason to own these shares then. Don't think so, no. No, I've got a wardrobe full of stuff. Uh, I tried, Ted. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Usually we like to end on a high note, but let's let's go even let's go even lower. Because I know you want to talk about revolution bars. I do. And 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 even more horrendous? No. No. Well, <laughs> Negative shareholders equity. Yeah. I mean it's I mean, talk, I, talk us through. Your, I think your this view. is a, yeah. I, you know, with my sort of educational hat on, I recommend all serious share investors to go and look at this company because it is a great study in red flags, warning signs of stuff going wrong and things that you could have spotted in advance really, really coming to fruition um this is a company that private equity sold onto the stock exchange red flag number one yeah about (laughs) about two pounds a share that's the ultimate red flag for me but it has a it has a concept you know it has a you know upmarket cocktails running portfolio of bars that it doesn't own but rents it it, it was vodka bars was the original years ago yeah and it's now moved sort of more into fancy cocktails well it it was um, food they got into rum it was yeah uh, they had this sort of the whole sort of cuban the cuban the cuban experience yeah this clearly doesn't doesn't sit well with the alcohol lovers of britain (laughs) <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, my, know, my understanding of these bars is it's a place where you might end up in on a stag do or something or a, uh, maybe, or a head night or whatever. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> I you have done. you got any money left. I have done. <laughs> um, but, you know, this this company has been struggling. You know, you look at like-for-like sales for a retailing business and this, this company has had a, has a portfolio of, uh, I think, around what, 70, nearly 80 bars. And the large chunk of these, the sales of them have been going down. And the money that's been spent on the new bars has not been making anywhere near the kind of money that the company was promising that they would make. And so profitability for the whole company has been going down. This company account, accounting, in my opinion, is very aggressive. The um, the they 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 have they have this use of adjusted EBITDA for a start. Now, pub companies are asset intensive. Even if you don't own the property, fitting these out with fixtures and fittings, keeping your bars looking nice, is a capital commitment that, and you need to replace that. So, basing a measure of profit before depreciation, which is a proxy or estimate of what you have to spend to stay in business to keep things looking is ridiculous you're taking out a cost that is a real cost correct and you know you you know from looking at other pubs and bars that the what they call the capex cycle which is how long the money you spend lasts before you have to spend it again is getting shorter and it's getting to you know it used to be maybe nine ten years and it's now getting to sort of five six years and if I, my view, and I've talked about it when I've been looking at Marston's in the magazine, my view is most pub companies' depreciation expense is too low and their profits are overstated. And I think this is the case here as well. And if you actually look at the cash flow statement, 
and look at the cash flow it's actually making. You take away what they should be spending on keeping their bars looking nice. I don't think this company's making much money, if any money. And you then start looking at the balance sheet and you have impairments, which are writing down the carrying value of the assets. But then you look at the assumptions that have have led to these asset write-downs and they assume 2% profit growth. And yet the profits of the existing estate are absolutely tanking. So you can argue that even after they've been impaired or written down in value, their carrying values could still be too high because the assumptions gone in to make those carrying values are unrealistic. And then we have a situation where um, the sort of icing on the cake is that um, the company is right up against its credit facility of about $18 million. And then you look at the fact that because it rents a lot of it, rents all its bars, the new accounting standard that's come in saying that the assets and the liabilities of these bars have got to go on the balance sheet. Now, you have a lot of underperforming bars, rented bars. So the asset side of it is lower than the liability side of it. So when these go on, you are getting a big hit because your liabilities are higher than your assets. Your equity or your net asset value is taking a hit. And this hit, once they go on the balance sheet, and they're not on the balance sheet yet, is £23 million, just over. And the shareholders' equity is 21 and a bit. 21 and a bit. So once these lease assets go on the balance sheet, the net asset value, the shareholders' equity of this business is wiped out. And what what are the implications of that? For the implications of that, as it start, you know, the implications for for shareholders is that I mean they're not paying a dividend anyway. But the implications for shareholders is is that this is the kind of development that worries bankers who lend money, and because the bankers are always looking at what security there is against what they're lending, and the the risk is now is that whilst it's quite quite possible eminently feasible for a company with negative net assets to actually trade and be solvent. Um, the points I've mentioned earlier is that you know we think that replacement expenditure is too low and actually real profitability of this, this business is very questionable. The problem is that if the lenders start getting worried and trading takes another turn down, and let, you know, hopefully it won't, but if it does, then the bankers might ask for shareholders or for more more equity to be put into the so, so an emergency rights issue. I think this has got this has potentially got deeply discounted rescue rights issue written all over it if it can't stop the rot. Mm. And the problem you've got is that even though it's coming up against very soft comparatives on like for like sales, the like for like sales of the business are barely barely positive. If you were very generous you would say that if you stripped out the refurbishments, because because pubs never need to be refurbished, do they? Well, some of the ones I go in don't. <laughs> yeah, they do rather. Then, then sales at the moment, like for like sales, are growing by maybe just over one percent if you're generous. Like for like cost inflation in this sector has been running at three four percent for quite some time now. Got wage, and that's only going to get worse. Wages, you know, the new new increased minimum wage. Yeah, but you know, you have business rates, you have energy costs, utility costs. 1% like-for-like growth 
is not enough to, in my opinion, to keep the underlying the pro- stop the underlying profits of the existing estate from going down. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Weatherspoons. Weatherspoons is growing at six percent, like for like, and its profits aren't going anywhere. And that's a business you like. Yeah. Not just because the beer is cheaper than the cocktails in uh, Revolution. Yeah, there's a different, completely different ends of the spectrum in so many ways um, in terms of business model, accounting, that kind of thing. This company looks in trouble, but I recommend you know any any listeners who want to sort of dig in, dig into you know a case study. And I've written about this elsewhere, and I've written about it in my Alpha report for what uh, over the last year or so. Um, it's a great case study in in, in red flags. Well, potentially, it's, you know. So over the last three weeks now, you've looked at the various different uh, parts of a company's accounts. Yeah. Uh, through through the uh, the the medium of masters. Mm. So we've looked at the income statement, balance sheet, the cash flow. Maybe just you know, sort of reverse engineer revolution bars with with these you know as a sort of kind of educational uh, process and 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 just try it out because they, these are fantastic uh, resources here. Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, I think uh, if you'd have applied these lessons, you would well, have spotted I, I these did sort write, of problems. I did write a piece on I did write a piece on revolution bars uh, when I worked for Sharepad um, a few years back. Pretty much pointing out, and I developed it. There were so many red flags on things like low return on capital employed, capitalization of costs. Bar costs, exceptional bar opening costs being taken as exceptionals. Um, I mean, it does sound like a lot of work. Carrying values of assets that the auditor report said might be a little bit too high, therefore they were under-depreciated or they were overvalued. It is a lot of work, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to to get across. And, you know, this is why investing is actually quite hard. And, you know, if you are going to invest in... In um, in companies, then you need to know what you own and take take the time to do these kind of exercises. Yeah. The annual report, and this is what I've been trying to get across in the last three weeks in the magazine. And I, you know, I'm not a trained accountant. I don't always get everything right. I'll make mistakes, but generally, by plugging away at it, reading these things, learning things, you can learn a great deal about opportunities and risks. And it's free. It's there. It's the best one of the arguably the best bit of resource you have on a company out there. And the point I'm trying to get across, and what I've always tried to get across, is that they're underused, and yeah. that's a, and that's a great shame. I would agree entirely. Thank you, Phil. Um, let's wrap it up there on that that rather soggy uh, note of revolution bars. Yeah, we like. To, yeah, it's been hard to be upbeat this week. Yeah. Well, next next week. Having said that, having said that, I you know just going back to what we were saying right at the beginning, you know. You look at something like the FTSE 100 now, yield, big yield on there now, um, some good good blue-chip dividends being paid. I, I can see why people are looking at that and thinking, actually, maybe it's not as bad as it's being painted. And potentially, fingers crossed, the end is in sight for the political stalemate. We, uh, well, let's not, not talk about it. No, that was but, but, jinxing it. But what, what I would say is that, you know, if you're an income investor and... Um, you know the same caveats with mind your eye quality and that kind of thing uk market if you're on things you know this is a good time if you if you're looking to top up your dividend shares or you're on dividend reinvestment and you're a long-term investor in you know an income producing asset like a FTSE 100 tracker or something um 
you might be quite pleased to actually see the price go down for a bit because if you because you'll be buying more shares with your reinvested income. Indeed, indeed. And in fact, in this week's magazine, there are plenty more ideas of things that you can buy. I mean, the stock screen uh, that Algie's put together this week looks at investment trusts that have been oversold. You know, when 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 the market's bad, you know, the discounts widen and it's, you know, it's bargain hunting time. So Algie's applied all his usual stock screening criteria to, to find a few of those that you might be interested in. Um, all the usual tips and uh, lots of the news section. Mostly, mostly bad news, it has to be said, but there you go. <laughs> uh, results winding down at last. But, um, uh, and, and the real, the, uh, the, the, the big feature in this week's magazine is uh, by James Norrington, which goes back to what we, we were talking about right at the beginning of this podcast, is this sort of political backdrop to what's going on in the markets. Uh, Patriot Games looking at, at trade wars and, and what you do as investors. And it's not, it's not immediately obvious how how you can insulate yourself from this if you can at all. Um, but but we've got some ideas, and James put them together, um, and it's a great feature, and it's a great cover. Do you like it? I do actually. Yeah. It's lovely. Very nice. Anyway, thank you, Phil, uh, and thank you all for listening. Um, pick up the magazine in all good news agents. Patriot Games: How to Protect Your Portfolio from Trade Wars. We will be back again next week. Thank you. <laughs>